was just thinking as we were getting towards the end of that song, uh, the scene in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 of John being in the throne room and hearing the praises that were being given to God and to the Lamb who was slain. And towards the end of Revelation chapter 5, uh, in verse 13, it says, And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. It's, uh, it's good to remind ourselves that what we do here is, uh, although seemingly small and insignificant, is meant to be a foreshadow of what we're going to be able to do in a much greater way when we actually are in the presence of the Lord. And so I look forward to being able to sing songs like this. I don't know what kind of songs we'll sing, but songs like this uh, with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of voices. That is going to be an experience. Having said that, let me dismiss our kids to Praiseville. Kindergarten through third grade, you can make your way to the back. Mr. Orlando is back there to receive you. The rest of you, if you have your Bibles with you, can turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Let me tell you what it is that we're starting today, kind of give you a little bit of an orientation as to what we're trying to do, how this came about, all, all good introduction stuff. The... Um, the elders and the pastors have uh, just recently gone through a book entitled The Shepherd Leader. Uh, the book is uh, first and foremost for those who have leadership roles in the church and uh, just a good reminder about what it means to shepherd a local congregation. And in our reading and in our discussion, there were, you know, inevitably things begin to come up. You begin to talk about uh, what it means to be part of the body of Christ, what it means to, uh, to encourage and walk with one another as we grow in maturity and in Christ-likeness. And so through those discussions, one of the things that, uh, that came out of that was um, a decision to take, uh, this will be at least nine weeks, maybe 10, I'm not sure, so probably through the month of November, to actually do a series on the church. Um, some of this uh, will, may be, how to say this? Not everything that we'll hear as we go through this series will be brand new. Some of it will be necessary, I hope, and needful reminders. Some of it may not necessarily be new in terms of, or at least in the sense that it's been in scripture all along, but it perhaps is a new thought for us to consider or a new perspective for us to reflect on, all right? So over these next nine or 10 weeks, we're doing a series on the church. This is a little bit different, uh, at least for me, because I'm, I'm sort of of the school that it's okay to do a topical sermon every now and then, so long as you repent 
and you go back to doing an expositional sermon. You, you work through a book or a passage of scripture. And we're about to do not just one topical sermon, but nine or 10 topical sermons. And so um, my knees already are very bruised and sore because I've been doing a lot of repenting, all right? But that being said, I think that even when we approach a topic in scripture, for example, the church, that there is a way to do that in which we can still try to not just cherry pick verses here or there, but we can try to say, okay, when scripture speaks about things that pertain to the church, what it is, what it does, who it consists of, so on and so forth, there are, there are verses, there are places that we can go to and we can glean from this, not what we would want to pull out of it, but what the Lord has revealed himself. And that's my hope that we do something like that in this series and that in this series on the church, that one of the things that happens is that we begin to understand that the things that we see in scripture related to the church ought to have very practical application to the way that we think about life here at Edgewood. These things are not given to us in a vacuum to be studied abstractly God gives his word to his people. He has revealed his truth to us in all of its many ways and facets so that we would know how to live as we see and understand what it is that he's done and what his purposes are. So, let me do this. Let me open us up with a word of prayer. I'll go ahead and tell you we have three main passages that we're going to be looking at today. The first one is going to be in Ephesians 3. The second one is going to be in Matthew 16. And the third one is going to be in 1 John 3. All right, so Ephesians 3, Matthew 16, 1 John 3. So let's just start, since it's the first one, let me start with Ephesians 3. I'll read this brief little passage that we have. I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll hit the ground running. Paul says in Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11. Actually, I tell you what, let's back up to verse 8. Ephesians 3, 8. Paul says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, <coughs> excuse me, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, 
according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Father, impress upon us now your wisdom that has been demonstrated in creating the church as your people, as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ. Give us a renewed appreciation to treasure what it is that we find here at Edgewood and to not despise seemingly small and insignificant things. We ask this in the name of our Savior. Amen. Doing a series on the church is a little bit difficult in this day and age because of the fact that our culture in many ways runs against church currents. And I'm, I'm not talking about necessarily the, the culture out there like, you know, immoral, wicked, sinful people, Patriots fans, and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about the, the culture just that, that we live and breathe just as normal, everyday people here in 2021 America. So, for example, <coughs> excuse me, for example, we are a people who, as a culture, as a society, we prize individuality. We are all about individual rights. Western civilization is premised on the sanctity of individual rights. That's not a bad thing. That is a glorious thing in many ways because of the blessings that have come from it. But the individual is who is prized in our day and age above anything else. Along with that hyper-individualism, we also are very... Uh, wary, if not skeptical, of authority. I mean, this, this country was built by a revolution where we revolted against the ruling authorities. That's not a criticism, just making a statement. There is something in, especially the Western but American psyche, something that is suspicious of authority. We, we love to let people in authority know that they have checks and balances. We love to let them know that you can say and you can do this, but don't try to bring your authority over here because I'm an individual and I have my rights. We're hyper-individualistic, we chafe under authority, and we are very suspicious of institutions. Institution, or sometimes people refer to as the establishment. Because institutions present themselves as being bigger than the individual. Institutions require that the individual submit itself or give up certain things in order to be part of the institution. So, for example, Marriage is an institution in human society. Marriage requires that two people coming together give up certain things that they had as individuals in order for the, marriage, for the institution of marriage to work. Family is an institution. 
In order for a family to work, people have to give up certain individual preferences and rights and privileges in order for things to continue to thrive and function. And we all know and can give examples of people who have tried to redefine or rework institutions, whether it's marriage or family or anything else, and the disaster that comes with it. So we're hyper-individualistic, we don't like authority, we're suspicious of institutions, and the church runs against those three pillars in every way. When you read about the church in Scripture, you become thoroughly convinced that the doctrine of the church is not a doctrine about individuals, but about a group. Talking about the church is not talking about a person, it's talking about people. The difficulty that we have, let me just say up front, is that in our English, the singular you and the plural you are exactly the same. So oftentimes when I'm in the New Testament and I'm reading something that says something like, you are do such and such, or you ought to, or you, right? You know how I read that? And I, and I suspect that a lot of you do the same. Because I am hyper-individualistic, because I like to set my own terms, because I'm suspicious of anything that's going to try to mold me into some preconceived idea, I'm suspicious of institutions, I read the you in the New Testament as being singular. This is what Jonathan is being told to do. This is about me. And it is about me, but it's about me so far as I fit into the them, the us. We don't like authority. But Jesus says before the church is ever birthed that I give the keys to the kingdom to the church. And the church has authority to do things like bind and loose. The church has the authority to put people out or to bring them in. The church has the responsibility, has the authority delegated to it by Christ to require and expect things of its members. It has a delegated authority that is brought to bear on my life. And the church is, in the best sense of the word, an institution that God has created. It is something that we step into that is bigger than any one of us, that molds us, that shapes us, that moves according to its own rhythms, rhythms and patterns and habits that nine times out of ten are out of step with the rhythms and patterns and habits of the world around us, even things that I prize as being my patterns and my rhythms. So we're about to spend ten weeks confronting ourselves with the reality that the things that we love and cherish most probably hinder us from walking with the Lord in a healthy and vibrant way. You excited? <laughs> but one thing I've always loved about Edgewood, and I always will, Edgewood loves God's Word and loves to acknowledge the authority that God's Word has over God's people. 
So, to the best of our ability, we want to speak truthfully, even if it is uncomfortable, even if it may be provocative at times, even if it may step on toes or wound or injure pride. We want to speak truthfully and honestly what the scriptures have to say because that's what God has said in such a way that it also comforts and encourages. At the end of the day, though, the Lord is going to do with his word whatever he sees fit, whether that's to comfort those who are suffering and afflicted, trying to find their place, or to make uncomfortable those who really shouldn't be comfortable. God is going to do it all. And so I'm, I'm basically going to try to preach faithfully what the scriptures say about the church, and then if you have any issues with that, you can take it up with God so long as the preaching is true to God's word. If I'm off base, then yes, bring the complaint, okay? So, we're going to start this series on the church by asking a fundamental question that we're going to try to answer in three ways. And the number one question is, because of the fact that the church in and of itself runs so contrary, is not something that we would naturally or instinctively gravitate towards because of how we've been conditioned as people and individuals and stuff like that, the big question is, why care about the church? Right? If, if, if what I have, if I have Jesus... I have everything, right? Why care about the church? Three answers. These are not exhaustive. There are other answers, but the three that we're going to look at today are these. Number one, because the church is God's plan to display his glory. And and again, let me remind you, because we are hyper-individualistic, You ought to hear that something like the church, not you individually, is God's plan to display his glory. Why care about the church? One, because the church is God's plan to display his glory. Number two, the church is at the heart of Christ's mission. And number three, because the church is loved by every Christian. That is a bold, provocative statement, but we'll come to that. Why care about the church? Because the church is God's plan to display his glory, because the church is at the heart of Christ's mission, and because the church is loved by every Christian. We just read from Ephesians 3. Paul is talking about the ministry that he's been given to reveal what he calls a mystery. That for generations past in the Old Testament and all the way up to the present time in which Paul is writing and serving and ministering, there was something that God was planning to do that no one knew about, that no one could figure out. And he is just now uncovering this plan and putting it out for all to see. And Paul is saying, that's my job, to let people see this secret mystery that God had hidden dramatically to bring about at the appropriate time. And Paul says, that mystery is known as the church. What I want to do, though, is go back to Ephesians 3 and look at what Paul says again in verses 10 and 11. Paul says... That God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. 
Pause right there. What that means is that God has determined that when he wants to display or show off his wisdom, the boundless knowledge and the depths of the wisdom that he has to cosmic powers and authorities that would make us tremble if we were to come in their presence. When he wants to show off his wisdom, he says, look at the church. He says in verse 11 that this display of his wisdom through the church was according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he caps off chapter 3, verse 21, the very last line, to him, to God, to the Father, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. That is a lofty space for the church to hold. To God be glory, not only from his Son, but from his church. now and forever. Why the church? Why can't God display his wisdom through you? Why can't he display his wisdom through me? Well, he can and he does. Right, but, but not in the massive, ultimate, like this kind of way that he does with the church. Why, why doesn't this, this language, this displaying his wisdom and his glory being invested in the church, this is not used even of things that we prize in this life, things like marriage. There is not a verse that says that God's eternal purpose was that his glory would be contained or held or displayed through marriage. His glory is seen in marriage, but not in a climactic way like it is in the church. Why not through the family? Why can't God display his wisdom in this climactic way through the family? Why does it have to be the church? Go back one chapter earlier in chapter 2. I think Paul, we drop in on chapter 3, but, but Paul has basically been building this discussion and this argument to where he is in chapter 3 by statements like this. In chapter 2, start at verse 14, Ephesians 2, 14. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, for he himself, talking about Christ, is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Now that's a mouthful. Let me, let me try to backtrack and try to simplify this sort of 
vague, archaic language that Paul is using there. If you go back to the very beginning of our Genesis study, Genesis chapter 3, good God creates a good world, creates people to be able to enjoy fellowship and communion with him, to serve him with joy and delight all the days of their lives. And yet all of that falls apart. Why? Because man and woman rebel against God They want to take the prerogatives of God for themselves and chart their own course. And as a result, they have been estranged from God. That happens in the very beginning. But you find out that it's not just simply that they are estranged or distanced from God. You get in chapter 3 hints of the fact that that estrangement from God is going to mean estrangement or separation from each other. Man and woman, as husband and wife, were meant to work harmoniously, joyfully, together. But now there's going to be friction and competition and contest, and things are not going to go as smoothly as what they should have gone. That's in chapter 3. In chapter 4, with Cain and Abel, what do you have? If in chapter 3, man tries to get rid of God, what does man get rid of in chapter 4? his brother. Sin enters into this world, and as a result of sin, we are separated, we are put at hostile positions against God and against one another. If God were to reconcile us to himself and only to himself, that would be glorious. That would be a gift. But it says something else for God in his wisdom and in his power to be able to reconcile not only sinners to himself, but sinners to each other. Any one of us, any one of us would be happy and content to know that we have peace with God and to say, I'm reconciled to God, therefore the rest of life is good. Let me just live on my own without anybody else impeding, infringing, slowing me down, trying to speed me up. Just let me do my thing. We love individualism. Let me huddle together with my natural groups, with with people that share my affinity for things. If I'm single, I want to be around other single people because, well, we have something in common. If I'm married, I want to be with other married people. If I'm an empty nester, I want to have empty nester friends. If I'm a Republican, I'm going to gravitate to Republicans. If I'm a Democrat, I'm going to gravitate towards Democrats. I'm going to huddle up in a pocket that's wearing a mask, or I'm going to huddle up in a pocket that's not wearing a mask. You see where all this goes? Anyone can do reconciliation in isolation so long as it meets their particular preferences and ideas, so long as their whims, their likes, their dislikes are being honored. It takes the wisdom of no less than the eternal God to take people like us who differ and disagree on hundreds and thousands of things and put us together in a place where we don't kill each other. Right? Right? 
So God's from his vantage point looks down at the world that is in rebellion against him. And because this world is in rebellion against him, it is coming apart at the seams. That hostility to God is expressed in hostility to image bearers. If I don't like God, if I hate God, why would I love those people who bear God's image? And this is what the world is. And then God says to angels and demons, to heavenly authorities and people with power that we can't begin to understand, he says, oh, but you want to see something great? 3564 Forest Road. Sunday morning, 1030, go take a look. Look at what God has done. God looks at this group of people here, not because this group is the church writ large, but because this church is one expression of the church, but God looks at this. God not only looks at this, he holds this group of people up and he shows them off to say, look how brilliant I am. Not you, not me, the church. You want God to look good? You want God to look and sound great? You better start making something of the church because that is the way that God has determined His glory is going to be revealed in this created order until Christ returns. Marriage is good and marriage is, is, is a blessing. It's not the church. There's coming a time when marriage is not going to continue. You know what will continue? The church. Nation states are good. It's good to have a home. There's coming a time when nations are going to be no more. You know what will remain? The church. We ought to care about the church because God has determined that through the church, through this conglomeration, this gathering of people, he shows his power and his wisdom not only to be able to reconcile sinners to himself, but to be able to reconcile sinners to one another. Number two. We should care about the church because the church is at the heart of Christ's mission. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. If according to Paul in Ephesians 3, Paul says that God's eternal purpose was to do this, to show off with the church which was created by Christ, we would expect that that kind of eternal purpose would reverberate or have echoes in the life and the ministry of Christ. Right? That's a pretty big statement to say, plan one, and there was no backup plan, was the church. So think then with me, before we even read in Matthew 16, when 
when the birth announcement for Jesus is made to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. The angel says to Joseph, Mary's pregnant, she's going to have a son. You will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd who's going out to gather my sheep into one flock. And then he says, because everyone's going to be thinking naturally about the Israel flock. He says, I also have sheep who are in other folds. I've got to get them and bring them in. They're going to hear my voice and I'm going to bring them together. They will all be one flock with one shepherd. That doesn't sound hyper-individualistic, does it? Matthew 16, verse 15. Jesus is asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? They give them the answers, but who do you say that I am? Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. On this rock I will build my church. For those... English nerds out here, what tense is that? We have no English nerds? Oh, thank you. We do have English nerds. It's all right. Don't be ashamed, right? Future tense. Peter, this, what you said, this confession of faith rooted in who I am, on, on this, on you and your, and your fellow disciples, on this, I will, future tense, build my church. Everything that Christ does, he does for the purpose of building a people for himself. Think of Christ as the master builder. What he does in his earthly ministry and what he does by going to the cross, he's paying all of the legal fees and he's doing all of the payment that's necessary to secure a plot, to secure a people for himself that he's going to start to build and put together. But because he says, I will build my church in the future, that means that the building that Christ is doing is not a building that he's necessarily doing right then and there. It's a building activity that's going to happen in the future, meaning after his death and resurrection, after his ascension, that's when the real building begins. Meaning, all of that to say this, that in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, what Christ came to do on earth, he is continuing to do in heaven, which is to build the church. He didn't do three years of labor, go to the cross, go to the tomb, Ascend back into heaven and say, well, I'm glad that's done with. Now I can set my mind on other things. He does all of that so that he can go up into the heavens and say, now it's time to start building the church. And that, 
from the moment that Christ reached the heavens to the time that he comes back, that is what Christ is doing. He is building his church. That is what is on the forefront of his mind, and that is what lays at the center of his heart, the church. It is a strange thing to begin to develop the kind of attitude or mindset that says, Jesus, I love the church, eh. How does that work? You know, that merit, he's a good guy. I like him. He's okay. Yeah, you, you hang out, you spend time with merit. I, I would, but have you ever talked with his wife? Oh, my word. I, I just can't do it. But that merit, oh, man, what a, what a guy. You ever seen his kids? You ever seen his family? They are strange people. That merit, he, he doesn't seem to mind to be around that kind of strange, but it, it, it just doesn't work with me. And merit's heart and his mind are given over to these things. I, I really don't care. At, at a certain point, don't you have to start to wonder, well, what exactly in this friendship do you actually have if there is no sense in which you can identify yourself with the things that are near and dear to your friend's heart? If God gives to his people a new heart so that we will love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates. If at the center, at the core of Christ's heart is his love for his people, is his bride, is his body, how can we claim to be one with Christ and not be one with his bride and with his body? How does that work? It doesn't. You chalk that up to a provocative statement if you want. You try to rationalize or soften it. We'll see in a minute here. I do not think that you can make genuine transformational Christianity work with a mindset that says, I don't really care two wits about the church. I could take it or leave it. It does not work. It can't happen. If you love Christ, if you want to be about the things that he is about, if you want to find where he is, you have to be about the business of the church. Number three. The other reason that we should care about the church, and this is what we're leading into in this point about the church being at the heart of Christ's mission, the heart of Christ himself, is that the church is loved by every Christian. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. And pick up with me at verse 14.
1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. There it is. If you were to speak to John, if you were to speak with the early apostles, and you were to try to tell them, I love Christ, but I don't love his people, I think John would say, you're lying to yourself. It doesn't work that way. So the question is, when we read passages like this, do you love the church? Not theoretically, abstractly, as an idea, not what the church will be ultimately in the future, perfect. Do you love the church now? Is your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ one of the new features of your new life in Christ? If in your heart you have you you experience or you sense no pull or draw to be with God's people, that is a warning sign. You say, "Oh, but, but that, that's okay, Merritt. Don't worry about it." See, I do love the brothers. I've got this half a dozen Christian friends, and I love spending time with them especially when we're out on the lake. Oh, yes, I, I love my brothers. Go back to 1 John chapter 2. Look at verse 18. Here's what John has in mind, framed negatively, when he talks about the brothers and the sisters that we are to love. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children... It is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that, is, that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Do you hear that? John seems to say that the people who count as brothers and sisters are the people who are together as brothers and sisters. So if you're going to withdraw from the family and say, but I love my brothers, John's going to say, you have a faulty notion of what that means. You can't love your brothers and not be with your brothers. I don't have to go home to be married. 
But if I don't go home, my marriage is going to suffer. I don't have to sit down at the table for family meal time. But if I'm never around my family when it's time to eat, if I never spend time with them, something is not right. If as a Christian, you would claim to love Christ, but you find no love for the people of God in your heart, you have no love for Christ's brothers and sisters, that is a red flag that is demanding your attention. Now, let me say, because this is, this is conviction that is almost impossible to bear. Because honestly, who in here lives up to this standard? Here's what I would encourage you to do. John is not expecting that you, on your own, are going to generate the kind of love for your brother and sister that authenticates your love for Christ. That's why John makes a big deal out of saying that the seed, God's seed, has been implanted in us, and the seed of God by Christ is what springs up and bears fruit. In the same way that you did not generate love for Christ, but that love was given to you so that you could live in love with Him, God will give you love for your brothers and sisters if you ask for it. The shocking thing is, sometimes He'll give you love for your brothers and sisters even when you don't ask for it. But this is it. There is, there is no plan B that God has laid out for us. It is the church or nothing when it comes to God displaying His glory in this created order. Christ gave His life. He purchased with His own blood the church so that He could make her a spotless bride. He is continually building and gathering his people together. And this is part of what we witness when we come together on a Sunday morning. This is something to celebrate. And because God in his mercy and grace has given us a heart to love him, he also gives us a heart to love the things and the people that he loves. So if God loves his sons and daughters, you're going to love your brothers and sisters because you belong to God. This is the mindset, this is the attitude that we want to begin to permeate the Edgewood body. We want to be so out of step with the world and the culture around us that we begin to catch ourselves when we're thinking in terms of the singular and we begin to think more and more about the plural. Not what does this do for me, what does this do for us? Not how do I display God's glory, how do we display God's glory, do you see? Because that's what God intends to do. And the beauty of all this is that because this is what, what we experience here, 
on Sunday mornings and through the week as we continue to serve and minister to one another, but especially what we do here on Sunday mornings. Because this is God at work, the more that I see evidence of God working within his church, the more my faith is increased and strengthened. I see evidence of the fact that God is real. Because nobody could do with these people what God is doing. The more attractive that becomes, the more that I want to be a part of it. My heart longs for the goodness and the joy that only God can provide. And God says, I've given you a foretaste of that joy when you get together with my people. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but that you have given us in your word not only timely revelation, but true revelation, that you have given to us your very mind so that we could see what it is that you have planned from ages past, before this world ever even came into existence, that we can know and say on the authority of your word that this church, what we do here on Sunday mornings as a people together, is itself the primary way that you are displaying your glory in your creation until your son returns to rule and reign in visible form. Father, help us to be mindful of that. Help us to think outside of the singular and to begin to think more in line with the plural. To think that you have saved us, not so that we could be an island, but so that you could make us part of your people and give us the ability to love that truth as we see it taking shape. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before Andy and the, and the praise team come, let me, let me say this. If, if you're here and you are not a member of Edgewood Baptist or you're not a member of another local church, Right, that would be a good first step for you to begin to know in a very real and personal, personal way the realities of the Christian life as it's experienced among a Christian body. To become a member of a church. To say that I'm part of this people who are the people of God. If, if that's you, I would love to talk to you. I'll be at the door on the way out, but if you want to hang back and talk a little bit after people have sort of cleared out, I'll do that. Your other option, and this is not just for, for non-members, but this is for members as well, I would encourage you, we have our evening service tonight at 6 o'clock. Come back this evening, 6 o'clock here in the sanctuary. We'll spend some time in prayer. We'll spend some time uh, encouraging one another, and then we'll actually have an opportunity maybe to build on a couple things that we've said hearing this message today, and maybe even, if we're feeling particularly adventurous, maybe even to open it up to a couple questions and answers, only if we feel adventurous. Also have to look and see who the people are, because then, right? Well, I love God's body, but I don't love it when they ask questions. All right, so you come back tonight, even if you're not a member, and, and talk more about the church as the people of God and what he's doing to display his glory. All right, 
But thank you. I've enjoyed this. Make concerted effort to be here for the messages and the rest of this series because this is going to chart a course forward for Edgewood in years to come, okay? Okay. Well, I'm going to invite you to stand. And as we stand, I just wanted to share with you that I wanted to sing a familiar song to many, probably a new song to some. Uh, so uh, the, the title of this is The Church is One Foundation. Uh, so if you know it, sing it loud and proud as we close out our service. The church is one foundation, is Jesus Christ dismissed.